Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my humble and hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Helene Sinrich. She is the director of the Fern and Manfred Steinfeld Program in Judaic Studies at the University of Tennessee. She is currently the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Holocaust and Genocide Studies. She has served as editor-in-chief as well of the Journal of Jewish Identities. Today, we will be discussing her new book, The Atrocity of Hunger, Starvation in the Warsaw, Lodz, and Krakow Ghettos, published by Cambridge University Press 2023. Helene, it is my blessing to be with you today. Thank you, Ari. I'm thrilled to be here today. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar you'd become as an adult? Um, I grew up in central New Jersey, in um, East Brunswick and North Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, I went to a, a Solomon Schechter Day School, and um, I grew up with Holocaust survivor grandparents, and they were definitely um, very important to the scholar that I have since become. Also, during my time at Solomon Schechter, I um, read Elie Wiesel's Night for the first time. Um, and as an elementary school student, that made a tremendous impression. I went home and told my parents that I wanted to be a Holocaust scholar. And they tried to dissuade me because they felt I was too sensitive to deal with such a difficult topic um, for the rest of my life. And um but when I eventually went to college um, at Smith College, Howard Edelman, who's a Jewish studies professor, was my advisor and asked me what I wanted to do when I was 50. And um, I said I wanted to do Holocaust studies. And um, he put me on the path that I then followed. He told me to learn Polish. He told me to take his Holocaust class. Um, and uh, the only thing I didn't do, which maybe I regret a little bit, is he told me to learn Russian. 
Um, and um, I then went to Brandeis University uh, as a graduate student. And um, that was really important, obviously, for my formation as a scholar. And I also um, interned and was a graduate assistant at the Holocaust Museum over various periods of time, did several fellowships there during my time becoming a sort of early scholar. And um, that's what brought me to the Holocaust. And specifically, um, it was during an internship at the Holocaust Museum when I was exposed to learning about the Wuj Ghetto. Um, I had originally wanted to follow my own family roots and look at the Holocaust in Transnistria, but I had exposure to my grandfather's deportation list pretty early on, and I decided that I'd rather pivot and work on a country where I didn't have family, and so I settled on working on Poland. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? I have always been interested in the central question of survival during the Holocaust. What are the factors that led to survival? I originally actually wanted to write about the process of deportation and the selection of Jews to um, be deported from a ghetto to a concentration camp as a way to better understand factors of survival. Unfortunately, when the time came when I was working on my master's thesis, I wasn't able to get access to the documents I needed. And so I went back to all of the documents I had looked at up until that point, and I just read through them. And the thing that really struck me and stood out was how many documents spoke about this very central concern of Holocaust victims, and that is food, access to food, hunger, starvation. And so I um, I realized not only was that one of the most important threads that ran through Holocaust victims' lives, it was also answering a sort of central question. Access to food was one of the means of survival. And if I could examine how people got food and got access to food, I could understand how people at least survived ghettos. And one of the central messages I want to share is that um, I'm really interested in the experience of Holocaust victims as a central Holocaust question. Um, a lot of other works that deal with food or hunger are often interested in Nazi policy. And I'm interested instead in the ways in which Jews experienced Nazi policy. What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance? So the primary theme of my book is the atrocity of hunger. And what it really looks at is what happens to a society as they undergo the process of starvation and hunger. I'm interested in this not only because I am very interested in how this process impacted Holocaust victims. I'm also interested in how this can be applied to look at other famine genocides. So I'm interested in how a society that is denied food or is exposed to man-made hunger, um, how that society as a whole um, 
reacts to starvation and hunger, the ways in which they try to address those problems, the ways in which households try to um, deal with hunger, and of course, the ways in which individuals um, physically, mentally, and um, uh, culturally try to deal with hunger and starvation and deprivation. What does your book teach us about ordinary life during the Holocaust? By focusing really on a central item that a sort of central experience of the Holocaust by focusing on hunger, um, it allows me to look at Jewish life during the Holocaust across both time and in all different facets of life. So hunger during the Holocaust and food access impacts Jews before they get into the ghettos, when they go into the ghettos, it affects how they are forced to um, engage in labor for the Germans. Um, and ultimately, for many of them, it's what leads them onto deportation trains. Where do you situate this book vis-a-vis -vis previous research on the economic history of the Holocaust? So I feel like usually when people are looking at the Holocaust and the economy, that they are usually looking at how the Germans decided to provide food to various marginalized groups um, and from an economic basis. And instead of looking at that decision-making process, which often only takes minor account of anti-Semitism in that metric, or that's not a major focus of it, um, uh, this book looks at the economics of how the Jews are dealing with their experience of hunger during the Holocaust, not how much food is given to them by the Germans and why the Germans make that decision, but rather how once they receive that food allotment from the Germans, that is um, distributed amongst them when it is in fact a communal decision, how households distribute food, how individuals make decisions in order to obtain food. Maybe that's not the best description. Um, let me try one more time. I think that the difference between my book and others that look at economics in the Holocaust is that most other books that look at economics in the Holocaust are looking at the economic decision-making of the Germans vis-a-vis uh, -vis what they will provide to um, those they deemed uh, racially inferior, um, how they make decisions about providing for their own populations while denying other populations. Instead, what I'm looking at is how the Jewish economy inside the ghetto operated. And I'm looking at how Jews make decisions about um, how they are going to be able to obtain food, what kinds of decisions they're making, what kinds of sacrifices they're making um, for, for example, their families, how their communities are deciding to distribute food in the situation where 
Um, that is a communal decision as opposed to a German directive. To the extent of your knowledge, how were lived experiences of the Ukrainian Holodomor famine similar or different to the stories and narratives that you describe here? To the extent of your knowledge, how were lived experiences of the Irish famine in the 19th century similar or different to the stories and narratives you describe here? When I was doing my research, I was very interested in looking at um, genocidal famine. I looked at other examples of genocidal famine, such as the Irish famine and the Ukrainian famine, in order to see what kinds of um, coping methods and experiences of hunger people undergoing those famines experienced. And so I looked at different kinds of strategies. So for example, during the Irish famine, I looked at ways in which they stretched food. I looked at ways in which they um, uh, bartered for goods. Um, in the case of the Ukrainian famine, I was also looking at things like how the lack of food impacted people physically, um, how, for example, there are these descriptions of people being found laying in bed, trying to conserve energy, um, and these kinds of um, physical manifestations, the ways in which people during the Ukrainian famine grappled with um, rationing that was not adequate for life. These were many of the same kinds of things that I also saw during the Holocaust, and I saw a lot of overlap in many of these coping methods. And this is part of what um, allowed me to look at what was happening during the Holocaust um, from the wider lens of genocidal famine. What does your title mean? Why did you select The Atrocity of Hunger as the specific title of this book, as opposed to other alternative titles? Um, when I was thinking about what process was taking place during the Holocaust when Jews were experiencing hunger, the word hunger didn't quite seem to be enough to describe what was happening. People weren't just hungry, they were reaching levels of hunger, which led to starvation, and ultimately, in many cases, to death. And it wasn't just this physical thing that was happening that was atrocious or horrible. But there was also a transformation that was happening in the society, in individuals, in being forced to make these kinds of horrific decisions um, in order to survive a situation which was not survivable for everyone being subjected to this level of starvation. And so I wanted something that talked not just about hunger, something that we've all felt at one time or another, I feel a little hungry, but I wanted something that really brought you to understand that this was, this was an atrocity, this was something genocidal, this was something beyond. What was the Rinek Baluki? Can you elaborate? Sure. So Bautsky Rinek um, was a central point in the Wuj ghetto. 
And it was the place where food went in and out of the ghetto. Um, on other ghettos, there were often multiple entrances to the ghetto. And what's unusual with Wuj is you have um, more limited um, entrance points. Um, and when I first started doing my research, I went to Bautskirinik, which exists in, in Łódź, Poland today. And I found there, just like the name Rynik suggests, a marketplace. And um, it was a place where there was a food market. And so I, I actually wrote about both the historic and the contemporary um, food market space, this space where food entered and exited the ghetto, but also where today um, food also comes to the population of Wuj and those who um, who visit the marketplace. What kind of medical assistance was available to cope with diseases incurred from food eaten? What kinds of treatments were feasible in ghetto conditions? Um, I don't think it's widely known by most people that actually when the ghettos were created, that a large number of the um, ghettos were the large ghettos were able to establish hospitals um, that pre-war doctors came um, and were able to deliver medical care. Now, what that looked like in different ghettos varied. Um, in the Krakow ghetto, you have the most uh, sophisticated of the ability to provide medical care. Not only do you have uh, hospitals and doctors, you have research studies going on, you have famous bacteriologists um, living in the Warsaw ghetto who are doing research. You have even an underground medical school. Um, and so we actually see that there's quite a bit of um, medical knowledge, um, medical ability, um, in the ghettos, what is lacking is that they don't always have access to all of the supplies. And although there's, for example, a pharmacy in the Krakow ghetto, we don't have um, all of the medicines that might be needed. Some of them could be smuggled in um, to some of the ghettos, but um, you have limits, but the limits aren't that there wasn't um, knowledge and personnel. The limits had more to do with the ability to get access to um, some of the supplies. But ultimately, although there was research done on starvation in the Warsaw ghetto by a group of physicians, the biggest problem was the only real solution to starvation was ultimately food. And this, of course, was in limited supply. What kinds of foods were eaten at religious celebrations? Who prepared them? How were they prepared? How were ingredients acquired? So during the ghetto period, we still had people living in their homes and celebrating holidays. Um in the early part of the ghetto period when people still had more food reserves, we still see things like the baking of challah 
and for the Sabbath and other kinds of celebrations. But one thing that we do see over time is that as food supplies become less and less, we see um, less being um, used during religious ceremonies. So one of the first nods, even during the pre-ghetto period that the Jews are starting to suffer in terms of food access is that we see um, less laden holiday tables. However, we do see efforts by all of the ghettos to continue to provide um, foods that were used during holiday celebrations. And so, for example, one of the bread factories in Wuj gets converted in order to make matzah during Passover. We see requests from the Krakow ghetto, for example, to um, be able to import matzah from Hungary in order to provide um, matzah for Passover uh, during that time. And so we see not only, of course, um, individual families and particularly women making um, holiday meals using what ingredients are available, but we also see even um, mass-produced um, supplies for holidays being either organized um, in either by um, production inside the ghetto or importing it to the ghetto of supplies for holiday celebrations. Can you tell us about the horse meat meatballs that your book alludes to? Who prepared this? How did they taste? What were their nutritional consequences? How were horses acquired and slaughtered? How were the meatballs prepared? So I will admit that I, I provide a lot of recipes in my book, and there are a number of them that I did test out in my own kitchen. Um, but horse meatballs was not one that I, I actually made myself and, and that tried, was my intuition. Try to answer the rest of the question. Um, actually, that that reminds me when I first started working with some of the recipes and I was thinking about how little oil Jews received and potatoes and things like that. I started trying to make things like latkes, which are, you know, pretty typical um, potato pancakes, Jewish foods. And um, I was amazed at how much oil was soaked up. And I it really made me think about how um, sparse some of the ingredients were and the limitations on what could and couldn't be made with them. But back to the horse meatballs. Um, the, the horse meat was one of the few meats that was um, allocated to the ghetto. In some cases, we have we, we had workhorses in some of the ghettos, and they were ultimately slaughtered. Sometimes they died, and people stole the rotten meat, sometimes even digging up um, horse graves. Um, and then with the horse meat, something that wasn't really part of the uh, pre-war Jewish diet in many of these ghettos, um, in part because horse meat is not kosher. Um, and a large portion, especially in uh, Wuj and Warsaw, were at least religiously observant. Um, they would grind up the horse meat and then they would mix it with additives, things like saccharin tablets, in order to sort of 
mask the taste um, and other kinds of ingredients to, to stretch um, the food. Can you comment on the thefts of food items that took place? Who were the primary perpetrators? Who were the primary victims? How were large-scale thefts different or similar to small-scale thefts? So I dedicate a lot of space in my book to talking about food theft, and part because it's really a complicated situation. You have small-time thefts from people who are immediately starving and they need food, and these can take shit form all different forms. One form would be, for example, um, snatching bread out of someone's hand as they come out of a food store. And in that case, we have a Jewish perpetrator and a Jewish victim um, who are, um, you know, someone who is just coming to get their bread suddenly finds themselves having lost their bread. We have people within families stealing from each other, usually moments where they have access to the food and they maybe are left alone with the food and they eat it themselves. We have a lot of uh, diary entries and other documents pointing to guilt around this. In fact, I opened the book um, with an example of a boy taking his sister's bread allotment. We even have a, a case where parents take food from their children, um, husbands take food from their wives. Um, a lot of very difficult and sad cases, particularly within households. We also see very large scale thefts where people um, organize together in order to um, for example, there was a case where an entire cart of bread was knocked over and people grabbed as much as possible. There were cases where um, there were secret um, bakeries where they would short each bread loaf a little bit so they could create extra um, bread loaves and trade in these extra bread loaves. Um, and sometimes there was just wholesale, wholesale hoarding of food by Jewish officials. But ultimately, the biggest sort of food theft that went on was the, um, the Germans themselves, when they delivered food, often shorted the deliveries by, you know, 5 to 10%. They charged an extra 20% tax, making food prices higher. Um, for food. And so we have really in these famine genocide situations, we have victims who are then taking from each other um, in order to survive. And this is because ultimately they're all in a situation in which there is no way in order for all of them to survive with the allotments available. Can you compare and contrast the social conditions in Warsaw with those in Krakow? How did these two Jewish communities cope with hunger and famine? So there are a couple of major differences between Warsaw and Krakow ghettos. Um, one, which is the biggest one, was simply size. So the Warsaw ghetto was enormous with you know, a um, 
a population of, you know, 250,000 people, whereas because in the Warsaw Ghetto case, you have not only the Warsaw population, which before the war was the world's largest Jewish population, but you also have all of these Jews coming from the surrounding regions of Warsaw into Warsaw. In the case of Krakow, you had a population of 60,000 Jews in Krakow, but you had actually the opposite going on. And that is that Hans Frank really didn't want to have Jews in the capital, in, in Krakow, what was his capital of the general government at the time. And so Jews had to actually apply to be able to be inside the Warsaw Ghetto. And so most Jews from Krakow had to leave the city um, and go to ghettos actually in the surrounding area. And so from a population of 60,000, you only have 15,000 Jews permitted to live in the Krakow Ghetto. So the first and, and most striking thing between Warsaw and Krakow is simply the sizes of the ghettos. Um, you have huge differences in terms of the populations as a result, because in the case of Warsaw, you have just a large group of people from all walks of life that are all allowed into the ghetto. And in Krakow, you really have an application system where people are being uh, selected to enter the Krakow ghetto because they are either vital to a industry in the city that the Nazis want to continue, um, or they have some other um, you know, rationale that allows them to stay in the ghetto. And so we see a very different kind of population um, in the two spaces. Comments on the phenomenon of cow smuggling as it occurred in Polish ghettos? So there was a tremendous amount of smuggling in the ghettos in order to provide kosher meat. In the case of Krakow and in the case of Wuj, we see this more with chickens, which were smaller and easier to, um, to smuggle. But in Warsaw, we see a much larger enterprise where they're able to uh, smuggle a whole cow um, into the ghetto initially in order to slaughter it inside the ghetto. Eventually, this becomes too risky. And so they began slaughtering operations outside the ghetto and just smuggling uh, the meat in. And... Um, this was um, for those who could afford it um, to be able to continue to eat kosher meat during the war. How did the famines you describe here impact women's pregnancies and postnatal childbearing? Uh, some people are familiar with the fact that there were, for example, um, forced abortions in ghettos in Lithuania. But in the case of Poland, we don't see this. Um, women are allowed to get pregnant and have children, but we see that many women seeing what the circumstances are, we see a dramatic drop in the number of women who get pregnant during the ghetto periods. 
We also see in some of the ghettos that women who are pregnant are able to get extra food. They get dispensations from uh, from rabbinical authorities, for example, to eat non-kosher meat. Um, and there is a priority on trying to help women, at least initially, in being able to have children. However, starvation ultimately very heavily negatively impacts women's ability to have children, fertility, um, the ability to carry a healthy child to term, and also famines are particularly deadly on young children. Can you tell us about the quarantine center at 109 Leshno Street? Why is it noteworthy? Um, the quarantine center at Leshno Street, it's not particularly important as a specific space, but it's important because the documentation that we have on it gives us a kind of rare glimpse into what happened in the quarantine center. So when Jews were sent from outside the ghettos into the ghettos, many of them had to spend a period of time inside of quarantine. Um, and some people were able to bribe their ways out of it. Some people had family that they could go to and get out of the quarantine relatively quickly. But for many, many people who had to go through the quarantine centers, this was an extremely difficult situation. There was very little food available in the quarantine centers. People who arrived, if they didn't come with their own food, uh, ended up in very dire situations. And the period in which they were in quarantine could really um, damage their ability to survive once they were able to get out, if they were able to survive their time in the quarantine. In quarantine, they couldn't work and get extra food rations. Um, and they couldn't smuggle food in or out very easily. Very often, some of the people who ended up in that quarantine area had already lost many of their possessions and didn't have additional items to trade. Um, and we see an incredibly high mortality rate in the quarantine centers. What were conditions like in the Plasho concentration camp? Can you comment on the experience of hunger and famine there? What is similar about the experiences of inmates in Plasho vis-a-vis -vis the other locations you describe in the book? After the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto, many of the Jews who had been in the Krakow ghetto who had employment were sent to Kwashuv labor camp. And that is where um, we see this transformation from the Krakow ghetto really into um, the population being in a, a labor camp. What we really see when we see the transformation of people going from ghetto to concentration camp is we see that in the ghettos, people were able to typically live with their families um, in sort of pre-war housing stock. In the concentration camps, we begin to see the sex-segregated um, camp barracks. We see people going from uh, eating in their homes 
or preparing meals as a household. Instead, we start to see centralized kitchens where people are having their food prepared for them. And so opportunities for family members to allocate the food portions amongst themselves begins to um, diminish a little bit. Um, and we really see people who have access to the kitchens really being um, privileged in terms of food access. What new insights does your book reveal about the Judenrat? How were Jewish councils similar or different in the three ghettos that you examine? I mean, I hope that the biggest insight that I provide on the Judenrat is introducing the fact that there was one more leader of the Krakow ghetto than we knew before. So I hope that that's a, a new insight. But um, in general, the way in which I looked at the Judenrat leadership is a little different, I think, from the lens with which many other scholars take when looking at Judenrat leadership. That is to say, um, I'm looking at them from mostly the perspective of how they structurally um, worked on allocating food. And what I saw was that a lot of the pre-war political traditions of each of the communities played a significant role in determining how those, uh, how that leadership saw the best way to distribute food. The other thing that I see from using that lens is that each of the um, Judenrat leaders are each trying in their own unique ways um, to do their best to provide food for the Jewish populations under their care. Um, Mordechai Chaim Romkowski, who was the head of the Wood Ghetto, is probably the most famous for um, coming under fire for not um, doing enough. I think I'm not the first scholar. I know I'm not the first scholar to sort of counter that assessment of him. In fact, there is a wonderful piece by Michal Unger on a reassessment of Mordechai Chaim Rumkowski, um, which really looks at, you know, his decision-making and what was possible. Um, when I look at him and food access, I really look at the fact that many of the things that he's blamed for are actually things that are outside of his control and being dictated by um, the German administration. Um, in the case of um, the Krakow ghetto, I think we really have something stark there where they go through four leaders and every time a leader tries to intervene and help the population they're responsible for, uh, they're removed and either imprisoned or killed or deported. Um, and of course, in the case of Warsaw, we um, also see a situation where um, there's a multitude of kinds of leaders in terms of providing food access in Warsaw, not just the established uh, Judenrat. And so, so I hope one of the things that I really lay out in the book is um, this idea that 
it's not just the Jewish leadership that has a say in how things operate for the population, but they are maneuvering around um, also the German leadership. What kinds of obstacles and adversities did you encounter during the process of undertaking this research? How did you overcome them? How did you circumvent them? I, I think the biggest obstacle that I encountered in doing this research, um, well, there are several. One, of course, is the fragmentary nature of the documentation. I had to rely on, you know, in some cases, really just scraps of paper. I had to um, navigate post-war testimonies. Um in the case of the Krakow ghetto, there was almost no um, documentation from the period itself. And so I really had to rely very heavily on post-war testimonies. In the case of Warsaw and Łódź, you have a lot of documentation, some of which is damaged or illegible uh, from the time period itself. But I think ultimately the most difficult thing that, or the most difficult challenge that I had to face was my own, um, the difficulty of the material and really facing the difficulty of the material early on. Um, when I was looking at the Woods Ghetto, I, you know, wanted to look at the, the Roma camp or the gypsy camp, which was attached to the ghetto. And, you know, I started with the account books because, I, you know, I, I, I believe that uh, there a lot can be found in the, in, the, in the account books. And there I saw at a time when the Roma prisoners were dying in droves, the, the Germans were ordering steaks and whiskey and things like that using the budget that had been allocated for their food allotments while they're dying of typhus. And at the same time, they're also buying, you know, lime to sanitize and bury the bodies that are piling up. They're not buying supplies to in any way combat the infection. Um, and those kinds of moments are very difficult emotionally. And I guess I combat it with sometimes taking time away from the project and coming back. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? So since I completed this book, I have been working on a second book project on a group of boys who were at Auschwitz. A number of those boys um, between the ages of 12 and 16 were in the ghettos that are a part of this book. And um, I am looking at their experience at Auschwitz in the fall of 1944. Specifically, I'm looking at um, the process of selection. So I'm looking at these boys all going through a single selection. And the um, tentative title for the book is Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die? The High Holidays at Auschwitz in 1944. I wish you the very best of luck. Um, this book was indeed extraordinary. And I absolutely thank you for your time, not only in our dialogue today, but all the time and sacrifice that you invested in bringing the book, The Atrocity of Hunger, into fruition. And I wish you 
sincerely the best of luck in the projects you alluded to. I can't wait to read them when it's out. Um, and I cannot thank you enough for your magnanimity in providing such generous, generous erudite and eloquent answers in our dialogue together today. Thank you. To our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Dr. Helene Sinrich. She is the director of the Fern and Manfred Steinfeld Program in Judaic Studies at the University of Tennessee. She is also co-editor-in-chief of the journal Holocaust and Genocide Studies. We have been in dialogue today regarding her new book, The Atrocity of Hunger, Starvation in the Warsaw Lodge and Krakow Ghettos during World War II, published by Cambridge University Press, 2023. Thank you. <laughs>